This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Whether you've tuned in on our podcast or you're listening live, we very much appreciate your time. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you now till 12. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning, climate lady. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? <laughs> I'm well. How are you going? I'm well, actually. It's a beautiful day outside. I'm really enjoying this crisp winter weather. Yeah, actually, I have this external thermometer thing in my house, you yeah. know, and there's one outside and one inside. Mm-hmm. And this morning, it just had, like, these two dashes, like, yeah. too cold and not playing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not sure what that number is. It's probably, like, zero yeah. or something. But, yeah. but it was, like, too cold, not playing, not yeah. telling you yeah, what the temperature is. Yeah, my car windscreen had frost on it this morning. Yeah, so that's fun. chilly. But you know what? It turns into these beautiful winter days. Yeah, Good day to cool. uh, get outside with a warm coffee. Indeed. Mm. Now we have some um, fabulous guests waiting out in the green room, so we're going to we're going to give you some news, Absolutely. folks, and then we will dive right into those guests because we talk about variety today. I don't yeah. think we've had so much variety in quite a while. Absolutely, um, it's going to be fun. But Dr. Ailey, what has uh, interested you this week in Making the news? Making news! Oh, some huge stuff this week, actually. Some really exciting stuff in my mind. The first one basically comes from uh, the Cassini mission. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. The, the bus that we put around Saturn. Exactly. So there was a little yeah, exactly a bus that we put around Saturn. It, it zoomed around for a little. Mm. While and then we basically, well, I, was, I say crashed it into the surface, but there's no surface. It's a, it's a gas giant. Yeah. Well, it's probably burnt up in the air. It's probably a solid bit somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But um, anyway, we we zoomed it on into Saturn. Mm. But before we did that, zoomed around Saturn for a while and zoomed around some of its moons. Now, one of these moons is a moon called uh, Enceladus. Some people pronounce it Enchilada, but <laughs> sure. Yeah, Enceladus. Enceladus. <laughs> so Enceladus yeah. is a really interesting moon of Saturn. Um, it's pretty small, okay, um, covered in ice, but underneath that ice is an ocean. Mm. And at the south pole of Enceladus, there are actually a lot of kind of geyser-like um, fissures and vents that that spew this this kind of, yeah, hydrothermal vents, so warm areas right underneath the surface that spew kind of, I don't want to say water because it's not exactly mm. water, but um, fluid. Fluid. Yeah, spew yep. fluid up through uh, the, the ice in these kind of ice volcanoes, right? And so as Cassini flew past, it uh, took some measurements of some of these. Now, these have been examined before, you know, it sent information back to Earth and they found some interesting stuff. They found some really basic kind of organic um, molecules. So these are, are just kind of molecules that are really, really basic stuff. But this week it's come out that they've found much more complex organic mm. molecules. Now, this is big news and I'll explain why in a second. But basically what they've found is uh, quite heavy, quite complex organic rich molecules. These are fundamentally the same types of molecules that are the building blocks of life. These Mm. are the kinds of of things that, um, yeah, are really important for DNA and RNA. Now, that's not to say they're life. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not microbes or anything, but they're kind of the building blocks that, that create life. Mm. Now, the reason this is so exciting as well is because there's been hypotheses for ages that these hydrothermal vents that kind of cause these, these ice volcanoes, if you will, are, I suppose, warm spots. And so, Having these really organic, oh, sorry, these really uh, complex organic molecules, um, kind of it lends to the hypothesis. Hi, I can't speak this morning. Hypothesis that there might actually be more complex um, molecules below the surface, and there might be, maybe, maybe 
some very basic forms of life. Mm. We don't know yet, but this is this is certainly uh, a piece of evidence in the right direction, mm. right? It's- and it, the other reason it's so interesting is that what they think is that, you know, given these these organic molecules have kind of shot up through the plumes, they're, they're hypothesising that there's basically a very thin film of these over the over the ocean of Enceladus. We have exactly the same thing here on mm. Earth's oceans yeah. as well. So this, to me, is pretty big news from this week. And it's, it's you know, one of those exciting pieces that comes out of these space missions, which, you know, they, they send back a lot of information and some of it's really, really exciting. Mm. And it takes time to it examine. It takes so much yeah. time to examine because they, they, you know, they do all their analysis up on that little bus. Mm. Cassini, you know, had all these fancy instruments and then they send that information back mm. to Earth and we mm. have to interpret it. And, um, <coughs> yeah, anyway, so that's that's pretty much what they found. I, you I know, think- is, there, is there the potential there that this means... Yeah. Something more is going on underneath the oceans. Well, I have to say, you know, of all of all the uh, of all the objects in our solar system, mm. Enceladus for me is the one of interest. Yeah, well, it's um, certainly it's, it's certainly the the greatest candidate yeah. that people have discussed. I mean, it used to be having... Europa. Yes, around Jupiter, yep. I used to be very excited about Europa. But these yep. days, you know, yep. once all that information from Enceladus came back, yep. and the idea of just the sheer amount of water, I yes. think it is a comparable amount to, to what's on Earth. That's right. Which is, if you think about seventy percent of the Earth's surface, yeah. Um, and this is a small moon, much mm. smaller, much I think it's much only like smaller than kilometers wide. Yeah, it's very small. Yeah, and. Um, Bigger than that, but Is it's it? um yeah, five thousand maybe. Yeah, yeah, but remember. it's it's um but it's a small moon, but mm. it's it's uh, basically all water. Yeah, like it's not That's like right. there are sections that aren't. No. It's water all around. That's right. With a nice thin yes. crisp of ice, ice on, top. on top. Exactly. Um, but very very yeah. But the dynamic uh, aspects of it uh, yeah. are there. It's not just yeah. one frozen rock. No, it's, no, no. It's dynamic. That's right. Which is really cool. Yeah. So it has this beautiful core that kind of yeah. 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 Anyway, it's really exciting. I don't want to go on it too long. Yeah. I I love it. We're going to get there. Really good stuff. What else you got? So let's move from planets to brains. Mm. Brains the size of planets? No. (laughs) (laughs) So look, this is uh, another interesting article that's come out this week, uh, published in the the journal Science about neuroplasticity. Mm. So for those who've probably heard this term neuroplasticity before, um, but it's it's a bit of a funny term. Basically, it's about kind of rewiring and re-strengthening our brains. So, you know, they say do lots of puzzles and particularly neuroplasticity has been talked about with kind of dementia and stuff like that and doing puzzles and, you know, helping to to keep our brains plastic and, and changeable and mm. movable. And adaptable. Kind of adaptable, yeah. that's yep. a great word for it. So there's always been an understand, a, 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 well, a lack of understanding, I should say, on how it worked. Mm. So we know that the brain's plastic, we know it can rewire itself, but how does it actually do that? Well, some scientists at MIT think they have found the answer. So what they did, they looked in uh, mouse models, they looked in tiny little mice, and they managed to, these were actually genetically modified mice, so they were able to... Um, modify the mice so that they could, uh, with some semblance of predictability, rewire their brains in a way that they could measure. They did this with little blinking lights and, and mm-hmm, things like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, the little receptors would go off in the, in the, the mice's, uh, mice's, mouse's, mice's brains. Mises. Mises. <laughs> Mises brains, and uh, they would know that they were rewiring the brains. And what they did was they looked um, at the synapses. So if you think about a neuron, you've got these little what kind of dendritic things, little um, tiny wires, I suppose, almost, mm-hmm. coming off. Um, and these these 
basically, you know, send out lots of, of electrical charges and, and all that kind of stuff. And what happens when the, the brain rewires and it's very plastic is what they didn't understand was that when this happens, how does the brain not kind of short circuit? Because there's kind of an overload of information. How does it not short circuit? And what they discovered was that these little um, areas at the, the, the end of the wires, I suppose you could call it, of the brains, is that they actually grow and change. Change shape. Change shape. Hmm. Yeah, they lengthen. So when you've got a uh, strengthening one part of the the brain, it actually lengthens, literally. Hmm. But the overload doesn't happen because the other ones around it shrink. Hmm. So you've basically kind of got a, a, a rejigging of the conduits of where things go. So if one gets bigger, the other, the others in a very uh, close proximity get smaller. And what they also found was that there was a particular type of receptor that would um, go up and down when this happened. And they, they pinned it down to a particular protein and they found that when this protein was present, uh, basically when you had less of this protein, it strengthened uh, the synapse and so it got longer. Mm. And then when you had more of this protein, it reduced it. And so the protein in the particular one you were looking at would go down and then in the surrounding ones would go up. Hmm. And so they would lengthen and shrink based on that. And so that's the, how they think neuroplasticity works. Well, that's pretty cool. Oh, it is pretty cool. It means you might be able to control it too. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. now knowing how it works mm. and that this protein seems to be responsible, um, yeah, it's a big, pretty big thing for neuroscience. Interesting stuff. Yeah, it's cool. Thank you, Dr. Ailey. Well, uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about death. Mm. So, yeah. Nice way to start your Sunday. Yeah, it could be. Could be. No, it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> be very uh, interesting. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 to Blah. Three, triple, ah. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now, we have two guests. Emil Corton-Wilson, who's a Melbourne-based filmmaker and visual artist, and one of his producers, Chris Luskery. Did I get that right, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, are both in, we're, we're going to be talking about this new uh, video installation piece called Traces. So, Emil, I might just start with you. What's the, first of all, this is about death. This is about recording death. How did you come to choosing this as a particular topic for, um, for this installation? I mean, what, what inspired you? Yeah, about five years ago, uh, as an experience, uh, my immediate family, there was a death in the family mm -hmm. and, and I was really struck by, uh, the lack of framework both leading up to the, the, the death and, and afterwards because, you know, my family's relatively atheist or, you know, mm, yeah. erring on maybe slightly agnostic, but, um, and, and it really, uh, stayed with me and started looking into rituals around death, started, uh, researching another, uh, larger project which is looking at death rituals around the world. Mm. And from that, uh, found this, um, remarkable technology, thermal imaging yep. technology. And, uh, just, slowly evolved into this idea of capturing the moment of death with a thermal imaging camera. So, mm. uh, it was, the idea was to create something that was, you know, th there's been a, f a few films, um, Frederick Wiseman, there's a recent film called Island, uh, an English film which, you know, in a very graphic, very confronting manner, you know, f mm. films at hospices and palliative care, uh, units, the, the moment of death. And mm. we were really interested in, in creating something because the thermal image is a, a, a relatively abstract impressionist, um, yeah. You know, version of the human body, uh, it was to create something that was contemplative and could allow the viewer to project, I suppose, their own experiences and thoughts onto this image as you literally watch the heat leave the, mm. the, mm. the body. Now, I, w I want to talk a lot more about that, that 
process in a minute. But in, when, when you talk about the, the sort of structure or the, 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 the functional structure that was around you when, when this incident occurred, I mean, are you talking about that from the point of view of like our healthcare system or, I mean, what sort of structures sort of failed there? Like what wasn't there that you thought should be or you were perhaps expecting? Uh, yeah, look, it, it was twofold. It was, it was, I think, uh, you know, without without a particular faith or you know a religious mm. structure, I think um, there was a a gap in terms of you know how the funeral was planned. How um, you know the I remember the the day um, of of this of, of the death, there was a a, a real uh, lack of knowing what to do next, and, and and so it was. But I also noticed a you know it was in the in the public um, health system, and and there, I felt there could have been uh, more. Time, somewhat more sensitivity. Um, there was something that um, that clicked in that felt. Yeah, it was mm. for me. It was a, a little rush, and it was it wasn't quite what I'd what I'd, I'd, I'd expected. I, I, I suppose you know, even the healthcare system, in a sense, outsources a lot of that to religious organisations. If you're religious, but for those of us who are who are not, who are atheists, it's kind of like, who do you outsource it to? There's no one to outsource it to. But the back to the the family, I suppose, is that the that's the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think in our research with, with Chris, uh, you know, we've, we've started reaching out to a, a lot of, uh, death doulas and, and, mm. and to, and to various, um, practitioners who, uh, you know, music, uh, thanatologists. Thanatologists, members of the death literacy community more broadly, mm-hmm. um, which encompass a whole range of different interdisciplinary, uh, groups, including art therapists. I think just on what, what Amuel was saying about the, um, uh, the traditionally kind of historical role taken up by religion in this in this area, that's something that we're only really now catching up to in terms of mm. trying to um, reapproach death like with a new framework. And I think that uh, one of the really interesting organisations in Australia is a group called the Groundswell Project, okay. um, which is partly where the term death literacy was created because. Um, this is still a fairly new field. Um, even though in a kind of like uh, unofficial capacity, people have been working in the role of doulas or um, uh, aides to the, the dying mm. and their families for, for many, many, many thousands of years mm. in and outside of religious context. And yeah. that's, that's what's quite interesting about it. So, so one of the things that... Um strikes me there when we talk about the international context of this is you know as soon as we we think about that we we think about other cultures and how they Mm. deal with death i mean what i'm particularly interested in is other cultures and how their atheists deal with death because Mm. it's fine to talk about other cultures and how their religions deal with that you know that's sort of the easy not easy but it's the more structured part but how do how do we see sort of atheist cultures around the world comparing to what we have here in australia i mean did you guys experience any of that yeah well i I think Generally in the West, we have, we have a tendency to conflate the religious and the cultural aspects. Um, and, and part of that relates to, uh, I mean, I, when we visit other cultures that seem exotic to us, um, we, it, it takes a while for us to orient to understand which of the aspects relate to each other. So, mm. you know, we, you might go to India and see a, a ritual being done there. Um, and assuming the cultural and religious a- aspects are kind of the same, from culture to culture, yeah, I think yeah. that tends to be something that you you kind of need to sit with for a while before you can really understand. Yeah, and, and we've found uh, in this larger documentary project, which is looking at upwards of sixty rituals, both religious and and you know governmental, um, you know medical. So we're, you know we're looking at everything from body farms in Tennessee to um, you know euthanasia in in you know Scandinavia. Mm. Um, 
but I, I think the, in terms of your, your question about how atheists uh, deal with death in other cultures, um, it's, I mean, we, we've, I mean, I think there's, there are some cultures where it's far more pragmatic and far more practical, and I think there's a, an interesting, um, we've, ex- you know, noticed there's an interesting, um, a greater integration, I suppose, between mm. the religious and, and the atheist, yeah. and, and certainly in, um, well, in Scandinavia, I think that's, mm. you know, probably at the forefront of that of mm-hmm. that integration now, now let's talk about the imaging itself because this is i, I suppose there is a clear understanding that as the body dies it cools mm. um as you know the body's processes slow down i mean over what period are we talking about here and what what do you see i mean is is the whole body uniformly cooling i can imagine that wouldn't be the case um presumably the extremities and that would cool first i, I mean what what does that look like and over what time does that process occur yeah so uh it, it was a really, really fascinating um, research process to undertake, and, and um, there's a, a few things that we discovered along the way. That there's a um, initially there's a, um, a period in which the body actually heats up momentarily, mm, okay. like there's some kind of enzyme chemical reaction in which there's a, a, a brief heating mm, before okay. the body then cools. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think it might be in the the abdominal. It's in the abdominal re- region. region. Yeah. Um, but you're totally right. It, it is the extremities that, that cool first, and then. Uh, um, and it's over the obviously you know the environment is is totally um, key in, in how the body cools. But if if it's just a you know a, a relatively uniform space in terms of temperature, it's a, about twenty four hours. Right. Okay. And, uh, but the and then in researching the actual cameras. Um, because the imagery that these cameras created is is very very beautiful. It's it's you can um, program a particular color spectrum into the, the right. image. So you yeah. yeah. in essence you're watching uh, this uh, you know like a, a blue to red color spectrum, mm. and mm. you uh, with a, a black background if the room was relatively cool, um, and you, you're literally watching the body slowly disappear disappear before your eyes and what you can do with the camera is you can program a very uh, small bandwidth of temperature sensitivity so right, right. If, if you were to say you know if we were only to ha- get access to uh, the individual for a couple of hours yep. you could program the camera into say you know a one degree or yeah 0.5 so it degree. goes from all colored to no color in during the space that period one hour yeah, yeah yeah so that's up to you where you where you sit that totally yeah, yeah. so you're talking earlier about you know your experience with this and processing and things have, have you spoken to the families have they seen these images and does it has it helped have they said that it's helped them with processing what's happened or so so this is what's what's been uh part of the the conversation with various families uh we've also um in as part of a n- number of other projects like uh filmed uh series of cremations and we've also filmed a series of home births there's a, another mm. project we're currently working on but um it's not just the moment of death that we're we're interested in. We're actually really interested in this uh, comp- comprising part of a, a larger portrait of how someone faces their their final days. I suppose so. It, um, this image is really only, I suppose, the the apex or the you know one one part of what is like a a much larger tapestry of of mm-hmm. um, how people face their mortality. But I think it's in ter- in terms of as to whether or not it helps. I think it's there's something very beautiful, and there's a, a wonderful quote by Simone Weil, the French philosopher. Mm. Um, the you know, uh, attention, purest form of um, love, is is attention, and there's there's something very very therapeutic and and well, 
the camera can be an, an amazingly therapeutic tool and, and just allowing a, that little bit of space or buffer between family members to speak things they might not have spoken. And, and um, so in that respect, I think that comes first and then... Um, you know the, the the recording of the the body is is really something that would um, come at the very end of the mm. process. Mm. I think I mean you know th- thermal imaging is I, I find it fascinating in the scientific context. It looks it can look amazing depending mm. on what you're looking at, whether it's a plant or you know whatever yeah. else. It can look amazing. So I can see how this would be you know very very interesting to see. Now traces is uh, something you're working on. So when when will this be um, available for people to interact with? Well, we're currently in uh, discussion. We've confirmed an exhibition outcome with the substation mm-hmm. um, towards the latter half of next year. Yep. Um, Maybe around October. Uh, we still need to sort of lock the dates in. Um, and the work is actually comprised of, of two components. So it's not just uh, moving image work with the thermal imaging uh, uh, um, sequence, long mm-hmm. sequence, but it's also containing or plan to contain a live score component by Peter Knight of the Australian Art Orchestra, okay. who's pledged yeah. his involvement. So the, the idea is really to create a work that's, that's fully immersive, fully sensorial, and also deeply contemplative within a kind of exhibition space. Yeah. So it's a kind of like full hmm. immersive experience. Yeah. And, and I think at this point, uh, you know, because we are still, we're looking to um, record multiple um Families and yep. multiple yep. subjects, so um, we're we're really looking for participants and collaborators. So anyone who's who's interested in in getting in touch can can email Chris Absolutely, directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming in, and, and maybe when it's uh, when it's ready to go, give us a yell, and we'll we'll chat about it again. But it's uh, it's fascinating the use of this sort of technology to to record something in a way that we wouldn't normally see. So mm. uh, interesting work. Good luck. I hope you get all the participants you need. Not that I want that to happen but you know <laughs> obviously there's a, there's a process for that but um thanks for chatting to us today on triple r thank you thank you we're going to take a break for some announcements folks and we'll be back in in just a few minutes three triple r. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 R In the studio with us now is Professor Mark Cook. He's the acting head of the Melbourne Medical School at the University of Melbourne and also a neurologist at St. Vincent's Hospital. And with him is his PhD student, Pip Caroli, who is from the Neuroengineering Research Lab at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, both of you, to Triple R. Morning, Shane. Thank you. It's good to have you back, Mark. We've talked, you've, you've been in here before talking about epilepsy, um, many times and your research in terms of implantables and, you know, what causes causes epilepsy but this week we you know i saw uh, i actually saw in your linkedin account some exciting news that had come out with regards to this new device you've been working on for what 15 odd years or something give us a bit of a rundown first on, on what you've been trying to do and then we'll talk about the device and the, the development sure thanks shane so it was big news this week with um the announcement that we got some investment in our device and, and mm. Cochlear will be building it for us. So this is obviously really important news because it means this is actually going to happen now. And I've been here and spoken a lot about how we've been interested to get an implantable device because studies that we've done earlier with a very invasive system for monitoring seizures showed that if we captured lots of seizures over long periods, we could do really amazing work around prediction. Mm. But it all centred around having a device that provided a constant stream of EEG data, so the brain's electrical activity, streaming out that we could catch and look amongst the data for evidence of when seizures were going to happen. Mm. So we did a lot of work over a long time with that and discovered some really, really exciting things that Pip will be able to fill you in and some more around. And we decided that we needed something less invasive than 
had been devised before. So we've been working on this system which was essentially based around a bionic ear hearing device. Yeah. Now, Pip, in terms of this electroactivity and what you see in the EEGs and all this sort of stuff, I mean, I mean, I've heard the, I think, I can't remember, I might have actually heard it from you, Mark, but I've heard the, the sort of terminology, this is like a storm of activity in the brain. I mean, what, what sort of information can you collect? It seems as though the brain is such a, a stupendously complex electrical device that there'd just be this sea of electrical activity. I mean, what do you, what do you measure? Yeah, well, a, a storm is actually a really good analogy and that is quite uh, close to how the signal looks when a seizure is happening. But even before the seizure happens, there are some little markers that, that, uh, we think we can used to predict the seizures from the brain activity beforehand. And what my research is really focused on quite heavily is that there are actually much simpler measures we can use to build up long-term patterns. So people are having seizures at certain times of day, certain days Mm -hmm. of the week, certain times of month, and just exactly like weather forecasting, if we build up this long historical record of when they're at a higher risk, um, we can make much Mm. better predictions and and when you say predictions i mean this is something i assume some of the information coming in would have to allow you to predict within is it minutes or hours you know for someone to say okay stop driving or stop you know stop doing the sorts of activities that would be otherwise dangerous if if they were to have a seizure and what what sort of time frame are we talking about for these predictions um the way i like to think or the way we're thinking about it at the moment is less of a prediction and more of a forecast so we give Mm -hmm. someone a likelihood okay sort of exactly like you would get on your weather forecasting app on your phone so you have a much you're currently at a much higher likelihood of having a seizure than usual or Mm. or much lower likelihood okay so it's just um the the information helps people to make these decisions but we don't ever actually say you're about to have one right now right stop driving because we can never be that certain yeah so i mean that was going to be my next question is you know ailey here's a climatologist and if she tells you it's going to rain today she doesn't know anything about weather it's climate so odds are the sun will be shining how 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 good can you do this prediction i mean what what sort of what sort of information would i get as a client would i get a a 40 percent indication that i would have a seizure today or would it be a sort of small medium large like how does that information get get utilized well that's something we want to work with with people with epilepsy to work out what is most useful for Mm. their for their lifestyle and it'll probably be different for everyone i envisage something like a gauge of of least likely a bit more likely mm-hmm. you know un, uncertain and more likely hmm. yeah mark with regards to the device itself um let's talk through that because i, I remember in the past you've shown me pictures of you know these are electrodes in people's brains i mean that's not not trivial how is this device sort of different or is it or is it the same i mean what, what are we talking about in terms of the actual structure of the device itself sure so it's very different so um, as pip was saying what we've learned about seizure prediction is a, a lot with these cycles and that we can make predictions or f- forecasts about the cycles and uh, that's really valuable and important and, and lets us do things that we were previously doing through putting electrodes directly on brain mm-hmm. so we were looking for features so we were looking yep. for little signatures in the electrical signal that we could use to anticipate a seizure coming and we got about 90 minutes warning on average so it's very useful mm. but the work pip's talking about now with forecasting is using these cycles so it's far 
less um, demanding in the terms in terms of what signal we need to collect to do that. Right. So we don't need to be recording EEG activity continuously from brain. We could perhaps get it from just under the scalp. Right. Yeah. So our new system is much less invasive. So it's it's like a fifty cent coin sort of size piece of metal. It's a little bit thicker than that. Uh, sits underneath the skin of the scalp behind the ear and then a wire travels over the scalp under the skin uh, right up against the skull but not within the skull Mm -hmm. so it doesn't touch brain so it's a lot safer and easier to put in it's still invasive in the sense that we have to do an operation to put it in right but it's a relatively small procedure to actually do Hmm. so i mean you both talked about this kind of forecasting ability and i suppose when you talk about that and you talk about, you know, your your gauge of, of likely or very likely, what kind of certainty are you talking about here? Are you When you say very likely, is that kind of a, a you know, a 60% chance or is it a, a 95 or 99% chance? With what certainty can you can you predict these? Well, I can say with the, with the earlier study, for some patients we could do it with an extremely high degree of certainty mm-hmm. and for others with a, a moderate degree of certainty. Um, that was with the earlier study looking at, at feature analysis, but Pip can probably fill you in a bit more about how we would do that with the cycles. Um, so the thing is, when you tell someone they have an 80% chance of seizure, mm. 20% of the time they won't actually have one after that. And that's not wrong. It's exactly what mm. you said. Um, it's just getting people used to using that sort of information, thinking in terms of probabilities. And I think we can, I think people can get used to it and find it really useful. Yeah. I think that's where you said in, engaging with the patients and what's useful to them yep. um, is important. Mark, I'm curious about the, um, the the range of applicability of this device because epilepsy, you know, as you've taught me over many interviews, is something that ranges from relatively mild to the point where people sometimes don't even know they have it to, you know, extreme cases of, and, you know, we, we talked about some forms of epilepsy last week on the show where people are literally having tens to hundreds of seizures per day and are incapacitated in many ways. I mean, over what range does this device, do you think, will work? Or, I mean, are you targeting a particular type of patient for, for its use? I think in the first instance we'll be looking at people who have epilepsy that's not so well controlled Mm -hmm. because one thing we can do with the device that's very simple and straightforward and what we'll be attempting to do first of all is using it to manage epilepsy better. So at the moment we give people medications, they report back how many seizures they're having but we know from our earlier study that's dreadfully inaccurate. Patients might be reporting having none but in fact be having hundreds of seizures a month sometimes, Mm -hmm. often because they're from sleep but often because the patient's not actually aware of their seizure. So we expect that will be the immediate application. Uh, If we collect enough data from anyone, as with the, the weather forecasting, we can start to make pretty accurate predictions and that will become very important in terms of managing their day to day life. And we expect that the patients who will benefit most, as in our earlier study, are those who are having relatively infrequent seizures in that case. Because if you're having lots of seizures every day, Mm. it doesn't help you too much to know you're going to have a seizure that day. But if you're having seizures separated by weeks or months, it's incredibly useful. And, of course, for people working and people engaged in dangerous hobbies, for instance, you know, the ability to predict is incredibly valuable. Yeah. Now, the device itself is in obviously in development and you've got, I mean, cochlear is, you know, bionic ear people, so they're, they're good at 
putting stuff inside their <laughs> bodies. Presumably, I mean, a lot of that technology is going to flow over into into what you're doing in terms of materials and, I suppose, exactly how these are incorporated into, into the body. Absolutely right. So Cochlear obviously got a very strong background in these devices, uh, safe devices, uh, the power supplies for these mm. devices and getting data in and off them, and that's really what we need. As well, we'd like to introduce a lot of new technologies down the track into the system concerning uh, accelerometry and, and other systems to give us more information about what's happening to people, mm. heart rate and so on. And these yep. are all down the track. But all of these other bits of data that we add to our stream of EEG make it much more powerful. And when, or maybe it's already occurred, will the first examples of these new devices be implanted for testing? We hope to uh, start a clinical trial in about 12 months, and that's okay. about the time it takes to actually build the things. Mm. And um, how many people will be in the trial? We're looking at 12 to 15 in our initial proof of concept trial and then we'll expand into a much larger international study. Yeah. Is this, is this something where, you know, Australia's, I mean, I'm, I'm wrapped that this is happening locally, like we're doing the, the work locally. It's not being, you know, palmed off overseas somewhere. Is, are there alternatives around the world or is this, is no one else doing this? Is this? There's another group who, whilst we've been doing this, have been working on a similar project around putting in a subscalp recording system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's work that's underway as well. Uh, that's a company out of Denmark. Uh, they use quite a different strategy, and obviously we think ours is more effective. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the, um, you know, the, the treatment as well. Is is there a is there a possibility this will move into that that range where you can electrically somehow treat the effects of epilepsy as well? I mean, I think we've talked about that once before. You know, whether you can reset the brain when this is starting to happen. Or that's a big uh, a big dream of ours, and I guess. Um, a, a patient of mine who saw that LinkedIn post that you mentioned to mm. me the other day wrote to me and said, I reckon just having the device telling you what the risk is will actually affect the risk. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. and maybe that's true. Maybe if maybe if you're told that your risks are low, it'll make the risk low. And, and she told me that because I remember the story once that she told me was that if her mother said, oh, I think you, I'm worried you're going to have a seizure today, it just about guaranteed that she'd have one seizure. <laughs> so whether the anxiety was contributing yeah. or it was just random, it's hard to know. But um, electrical therapy, sure, if you can predict seizures and deliver your electrical therapies more effectively. Mm-hmm. But as well, the big problem with epilepsy is you've got to take a drug every day for something that happens only occasionally. Right. And if you could tune that so you only needed to take therapy when it was necessary, that would just be revolutionary. Yeah, it seems as though this is consistent with many other areas of, of healthcare, you know, whether it's diabetes or whatever, where, you know, we, we give someone one injection to last, you know, you, yes. know, you see people going from, you know, their, their blood glucose is up and down like a yo-yo as a result of not being fed the, the, the drug as needed by the body. I mean, as you say, if you're only getting, if you're in the case where you're getting one fairly severe seizure a month and you're on this, you know, presumably with side effects drug every day that you know i mean this is not not the way to to do it so how far off do you think that will be to actually be able to monitor it in such a way that you can modify drug delivery how far do you think pip i mean we're underway at the moment with a project to actually start collecting this data which pip can tell you a bit more about yeah so the plan is to have the devices in early next year but Mm -hmm. ideally that means we start collecting self-reported seizure data right now so we have a mobile app to start doing that and after six months to 12 months of data collection we would like to start using these patterns to time medication and then that sort of Mm. 
flows on really nicely to with the implant device starting to do forecasting with the brain waves as well well, look, it's incredibly exciting, and I think uh, if it, you know, if it goes the way the, the cochlear stuff did, which uh, was obviously a huge success for, you know, for Australia and, and people around the world, um, this will be exciting stuff for people with uh, epilepsy. So, good luck. Thanks for coming in, and um, we'll, we'll chat to you again when um, you know the clinical trial starts, maybe, Mark, and we'll um, see how how some of the patients are finding it. That'd be great. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. Professor Mark Cook and uh, Philippa Pip Caroli, a PhD student, both from the University of Melbourne and working with St Vincent's Hospital on this amazing work, thanks to some support from the Cochlear company that brought us the bionic ear. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with our final guest for today in just a few minutes. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now is a PhD student, Robbie Benelli. He is from the Population Health and Immunity Division of the Barlow Lab at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Robbie, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You jumped down the mic there. Too. <laughs> I, love it. I haven't turned up for the last uh, last guest, and <laughs> you're behaving, which is good. Um, now uh, you're you're doing some uh, some bio. Um, informatician type work at, at WeHi yeah. on uh, in the area of metabolomics. First of all, what is metabolomics? Okay, so it's a, I mean, <laughs> when like you, a sandwich maker. Yeah, it does me. exactly. <laughs> it does like it, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, basically, is the study of all these little molecules that are basically traveling like in our body, and yep. they are they basically help our body going like and to function mm-hmm. every single day. Mm-hmm. And these small med- molecules are called metabolites. So right. metabolomics is basically. Um, taking and monitoring all of the metabolites that are going on at a very specific time in your body. Say, for example, like we take a blood sample out of your veins and we can basically measure all of like the amount of all of these metabolites that you have like in the body. And then we can basically start checking like, how, like, I don't know, like how many of these metabolites like you have, how much do you have of them? Like if they change. And what sort of stuff does that affect? Like, if you if you know that about me, you know my yeah. my metabolite levels. Yeah. I mean, what sort of information can you infer from that about my health? So basically, what I can do more that infer information straight about like your health. In my case, for example, I can compare you with someone else. Okay. Say, for example, like I'm working to study this um, very rare eye disease, which has. <laughs> It doesn't mean which is a mouthful thing, like, it's called macular telangiectasia type 2. Okay. I refer to it like called MACTEL, <laughs> much shorter. Mm-hmm. And, um, basically like, um, when I measure all of the metabolites, I can take, say, for example, you, and you are an healthy patient, like you don't have problems with your eyes, and I can compare your metabolom, like your metabolomics, so like all of your metabolites and how much you have of these metabolites, with, say, for example, someone else who is affected by this disease. Mm-hmm. And try to understand whether, like, you are different from this person. Okay, and and is that something you expect to see in the metabolites? I mean, the, you, you referred this as an eye disease, which yeah. sounds fairly contained. Yeah, but obviously, this is something you're collecting from the blood from all over the body. So exactly. you're expecting to see the effect everywhere. Yeah. So basically, what we have. Um, so one year ago, we published this study in uh, in Nature Genetics, and basically, what we've seen um, it was a genetic study. Mm-hmm. And basically, we have um, scanned the DNA of al- like almost like 500 uh, patients that have the disease, and we have compared their genomics, like their DNA, with 
almost like 2,000 people who don't have the disease. Okay. And we have noticed that people with that disease have these uh, mutations in their DNA, or like a lot of them have these kind of mutations, and they are all linking, like they are all connected to certain levels of metabolites yep. that they probably have like in their body. So that's why like we went on the metabolites and we started basically checking like, look, the genetics is telling us that probably something is going wrong mm. with, with the amount of certain metabolites that they have in their blood. So let's try to compare like these people with healthy people and actually check like whether there are these differences. Mm. So you're talking about this with reference to one specific eye disease, but could yeah. this be applied further afield do you think there would be other diseases you that know might be by connected this, yeah that, that, with the metabolomics so yeah. like usually um so metabolomics like like especially like in a recent time is taking is taking place mm-hmm. and it has been tried like also like in other diseases now specifically like to eye disease i'm not aware of which one are the other eye disease that might be affected like or like through metabolites levels and everything. Mm. Say, for example, I do not take, for example, age-related macular degeneration, which is not right. very, very common eye yeah, disease. Yeah. Some studies have been done. So, like, usually, like, people try to check, mm. also, like, for metabolomics profile, because imagine, like, even if um, you have a disease in your eye, your eye, of course, is sustained by blood, right? Mm, yeah. Like, blood, yeah. like, runs, like, through, yeah. through your mm. vein and goes, like, all over, like, your body. And it transports all of the, basically, like, all of the nutrients, all of the, you know, things mm. that each part of your body needs. Mm-hmm. And, like, these little molecules are these kind of things. Like, mm. they regulate, they do. So, so, going on from that, do you think that the changes in these metabolites are symptomatic of this eye disease or is this causal causal yeah. exactly you're actually asking like the million dollar question <laughs> right where's my million dollars <laughs> we'll give you five dollars yeah. so basically what we're working on is exactly to try to understand this so we have seen that people with the disease have um two metabolites specifically in their blood which are reduced compared to people with um like healthy people that don't have the mm-hmm. disease these two metabolites are called glycine and serine and basically, we are actually asking exactly this question. We are saying, look, are these two metabolites down, like, like very, very, like they have very, very small amount because of the disease mm-hmm. or the fact that they are down is causing the disease? And to do that, we are actually crossing the genetics with the metabolites and actually all the different things that they are going wrong, like in their eyes. We're actually also like analyzing mm. images about what is going wrong, like in their eyes. And we are basically trying like to compare, look like people who have this kind of um, different problems in their eyes. Do they have specific genetics? If they have these specific genetics, do they have a lower or higher value of these metabolites? Are these metabolites that are like connected with like different problems that they have like in their eyes? So basically by doing like this three-way crossing of all this data, we have like an amazing mm. amount of like mm. information and data. We can basically start asking like exactly this question of uh, are they and Robbie, I mean, just quickly, uh, I always try and get this out of bioinformaticians yeah. and I usually fail. But, <laughs> but how much, I mean, how much data are we talking to he- about here? And give it to me in DVDs because I okay. know, you know, DVDs 4.3 gigabytes. <laughs> Okay, yeah. How much data, you yeah. know, are we talking about a room full of DVDs here or are we talking about two DVDs? Okay, so, <laughs> so if you, okay, so let's take like, say for example, like the, like a DVD, like let's just say like three mm. gigabytes, yep. right? One DVD. Mm-hmm. Okay, so only the results of one of our analyses is 20 DVDs. 
Oh, okay. okay. Just, just the results. results. So just not the, the input data. Exactly. Right. Like the yeah. input, the input data. Like yeah, I, I'm not sure. Like how much like it would be probably like this room filled up of DVDs. At you this see, stage. Now, <laughs> see now, I've yeah. got an image of yeah. it. That's yeah. a lot of data. Yeah, it's a lot of data. It and, is a lot and, of data. Yeah. And I'm more impressed by that. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you know, a room full <laughs> of DVDs. Like whereas if you'd said to me, you know, it's a DVD and a half, I was like, yeah, whatever. But that's that's a lot of data. We are dealing with a lot of data. So exciting. Yeah, and at that point, I suppose that the processing time becomes relevant. Like as in how fast you can process that data actually Absolutely. limits you like it could be yeah. weeks or months um, so you need fast computers yeah this is actually yeah. like amazing like also because like technology likes improving like mm. literally every single day like each year like we see improvement yeah, yeah. in the technology and in the power of like the computers and literally yeah. like now like we can run and i can obtain those in, 20 in dvds results mm. in yeah. probably like i don't know like Three minutes yeah, wow. of processing, yeah. and it's it's incredible. Do you yeah, need yeah. to use supercomputers for this kind of analysis? There are certain analyses that we do. Yeah. Personally, I don't because mm. my um, mm. my dad said like they are not as big as yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah, yeah. so like imagine that's like cool. other people that actually need to use these supercomputers. Yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah. how much data they no, have to deal cool. with. <laughs> now, now, Robbie, we also got you in because I wanted to talk to you as one of the two founders of this new uh, quiz in science program. Yes. So, tell us what you're doing there. Okay, so basically. Um, um, we are a very, very new association mm-hmm. and, uh, we started like a few months ago. And yeah, basically, um, what we do is that we have, um, collected LGBT, like we have invited LGBT people and queer people that work in science on the Parkville, um, medical research yep. present. Of which I assume there are many? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We actually have, hmm. <laughs> uh, we started like with just like a normal drink, like, you know, like a social drink. Yep. And then like we got like at least like 80 people turned up. <laughs> wow. It was like yeah. amazing. Uh, and so. we, we had three of them on our show last week. Yeah. We, we yeah. didn't yeah, make, yeah, yeah. you know, we didn't make a big song and dance about that, but they were from your, your new yes. grouping. Yeah. And you guys organized them for me. Exactly. Which was so Basically, fabulous guests. Yeah. What yeah. we're trying like to make is that we are trying like to make like a community hmm. that provides support and network basically for all the queer people working around um, mm. around science and around STEM also like what we are trying like to do is that we are trying like to promote visibility yep. about all of us and visibility is very important because like if you are visible out there people recognize that you are there yeah. recognize that like there are like specific things that needs to be tackled mm-hmm. and especially if there is visibility you don't feel alone anymore yeah 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 Absolutely. I mean we were talking briefly in the we've got a couple of minutes here but yeah. we were talking in the green room that you know research is an area that's tough like yes. generally you know, there's a lot of bullying there's some you know some problems in research if you're a woman in research tougher there's another level but this is the next level again yeah, which like without is. the support is, is presumably you know somewhat intolerable I would think exactly like it's so um, especially like your sexuality like mm. even if people like don't think about it like enters in your life like day to day yeah like other like someone like asking me like why why like why is it important like to bring like sexuality like in your mm. workplace and stuff and like yeah like one of the one of the answers that I usually give is like think about how many times like during the day or like during the week you speak about your partner your yeah. ex-partners, yeah. your feelings for another person, or yeah. even if you don't do it, think how many times other people do it. Yeah, it's there all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just yeah. something like of our life, like on mm-hmm. the way that like we live, like you know, like it's who we love and who yeah. we relate to, and, like. it's, and it's in our language exactly. as well, which is Especially, also problematic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So basically, like what my group tries like to do also like is also like to try to normalize the 
LGBT, LGBTQI plus mm. presence mm. in the community. So it'll be like, look, we are here. Don't assume we are all exactly the same. Yeah. Don't assume everybody is absolutely like heterosexual, cisgendered. Yeah. So it's like, you know, like there is a big spectrum of yeah. people and we are all amazing and we're here and yeah. we are proud of who we are. Now just quickly, how do people find uh, this new grouping? Okay. So we have uh, two tunnels right now and well, right now, like we are using mainly like Twitter. Yep. And you can find us on Twitter at uh, Queers in Science mm-hmm. or if you want more information about us you can contact us at um, queerparkville at gmail.com Sounds great. Robbie, it's an absolute pleasure having you in. Um, Thank you so much you know, for having me. It's in particular, amazing. you know, I got you in to talk about this this new uh, this new um, program you're running, which is great. Thank but you. also to hear about your research. And finally, someone gives me some clarity on the data. Yes. The amount of DVDs. <laughs> yep. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. This is like the scientific <laughs> equivalent of the number of MCGs. I've been, or whatever, yeah. you know? I've been, really, I've been pushing <laughs> yeah, guests lately right. to give me clarity because yeah, I, like I, 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 don't, I don't like this business me, of me walking out and not knowing. So, Robbie, thanks so much for coming in. It's great Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank you. All right, Robbie Benelli is. PhD student at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. We're almost out of time, Ailey. We're going to have to go. I know. So, uh, it's gone sad. so quickly. It's gone Fabulous quick. Guests. It goes quick when we have good guests and stuff. Um, just you and me today, but yep. we rocked it. We, 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 we did. normally we have three or four hosts, but today uh, everyone was away. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We're going to hand over now to Cam and uh, Matt Stedman over there are ready to go with Eat It. Have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And uh, thanks for listening to Triple R. We'll chat again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.